Are the burden of proof and the fundamental legal tenet of innocent until proven guilty under assault in the court of public opinion today? Find out on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio may all too often be afraid to talk about. This is episode 276 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Monday, November 7th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, last year simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, there's a brand-new book out entitled Justice in the Age of Judgment, from Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Battle for Due Process in the Digital Age. Our guests today are its authors, Anne Bremner and her brother, Doug Bremner. Now, Ms. Bremner began her legal career as a prosecutor. She spent many years as a defense attorney. These days, she's a media legal analyst who has appeared on Fox News, MSNBC, Court TV, CNN, ABC's Good Morning America, and a host of other media platforms. Her brother, Doug Bremner, is a medical doctor, filmmaker, author, and a professor at Emory University in Atlanta. Ann and Doug Bremner, welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. Is Ann there, too? Okay. Uh, you were you're breaking up a little bit, but I, but I think you're there. Now, okay. Uh, I'm going to want to ask Ann how defending college student Amanda Knox in the highly publicized murder trial in Italy led to this book in just a minute. But, Doug, let me start out with you. You are, among other things, a professor of psychiatry at Emory University. Is social media making life very difficult for all parties in criminal trials, prosecutors, defense counsel, defendants, victims, and families? Isn't that one of the main contentions of your book with Anne, Justice in the Age of Judgment? Well, thanks for having us on, Doc. Um, yeah, the social media is increasingly a challenge for for everyone involved in the legal profession because too often there's a rush to judgment before there's the uh, the facts have a chance to be heard in the court of law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and I had heard about the Amanda Knox case in the news when it was going on some, I guess, fourteen years ago. But I had no idea how horribly she was treated by the so-called justice system in Italy. As the father of daughters, I, I was just, I was horrified to read for the first time the details of how she was victimized there in your book, Justice in the Age of Judgment. Can you refresh our listeners' memories about Amanda Knox's case, how you got involved in it, 
and how it compelled you to write this new book. And please tell us about this horrible man, Giuliano Mignini. I hope I pronounced his name right. You you did. Can you hear me all right? Yes, ma'am. Sure can. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, I was asked by some family and friends to help her because she'd been in, she'd been in jail for a year when I got involved, and all kinds of false and salacious information was being leaked from sealed hearings. And she was hit on the head during interrogation that was endless. She she didn't have a certified interpreter. She didn't have a lawyer. She was told she had HIV. She, she, they they listed her sexual partners. They basically said because she did cartwheels and kissed her boyfriend that she was guilty of murder. It was unbelievable because there was no evidence against her, none whatsoever. So we started a media campaign primarily showcasing the, what we call the Fellini forensics, which is basically just laughable forensics in this case. And a broadcast that had been white turned to black. They kicked it around for 40-some-odd days, picked it up, passed it around, everything. A knife had been transported in a shoebox. Those are the only two items of claimed evidence that turned out once independent experts looked at those, they said that they were contaminated, compromised, and inadmissible. And ultimately, years later, four years she spent in prison, so did Raffaele. But years later, they were both exonerated. Not just not guilty, but exonerated. Wow. I mean, let me ask you, because one of the things that I discovered uh, in your book, Justice in the Age of Judgment, is that the uh, the legal system in Italy is much different than the American legal system. For one thing, if you're exonerated, if you're found not guilty of something in, in America, then we're done here. Um, you know, if you're found guilty, you can appeal. But if you're found not guilty, the prosecution can't appeal and it's quite right. different in Italy. I, I, I was horrified. Uh, was this a shock yeah. to you, too? Yeah, we call it not double jeopardy, but triple jeopardy. She was acquitted in her, her second trial. They do de novo, like starting all over again appeals. Yeah. She was acquitted. She came home in 2011, and they tried her again. That's... I mean, it's unbelievable to me. There's no double jeopardy prohibition in Italy. And, and, and obviously... Um, even as a, 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 a former prosecutor and a longtime criminal defense attorney, you know, you weren't ready for that. Let, let me ask you this, too. I mean, the fact that a law enforcement officer hit her on the head um, in, in the process of, I guess, they kept her up for, for like 43 hours at one point interrogating her. Is there any possibility of someone in law enforcement in Italy being prosecuted for assault in a case like that? Well, you know, this Manini was prosecuted for abuse of office during Amanda's trial. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't, they didn't prosecute that officer or officers. She, it was found to be a violation of, of uh, human rights. It was a human rights violation founded in international law tribunal. Sure. But keep in mind, too, also, she got charged with criminal um, defamation for making that claim. And so did her parents. Again, wait a minute. Um, Amanda got charged for criminal defamation for for making the claim that she, that she was hit on the head. Yeah, I think she got, she got charged case. for the Lumumbo case, didn't she? Yes. Yeah, the, the defamation is actually from Lumumbo. Okay, and, and Lumumbo, uh, Patrick, uh, I think it was his name Patrick Lumumbo was 
her boss at a bar where she just got uh, gotten a job, uh, and and somehow or another they they you know they they tied him into this this murder case also. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know an, another the civil. The, the point of that was that I think that the the, the travesty of justice here was that. They created this coerced confession where they got her to say that Lumumba was there when he wasn't, and then they charged her with defamation for falsely saying that Lumumba was there when it was all part of uh, um, this coerced con- con- confession, which is actually similar to, you know, just to sort of highlight the fact that this isn't just a problem with the Italian judicial system. We wrote a chapter about um, a case that was there in your neck of the woods in Arkansas, the West Memphis Three from West Memphis, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. Which also involved a coarse confession and very similar sort of idea of the police and the prosecutors that there was a satanic cult involved, just the same way that Mignini, you know, falsely thought that there was a satanic cult behind the murder. This is, it's just insane. We're speaking with Ann and Doug Bremner about their new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment. So, Ann, one of the things you mentioned also was stuff that was leaked by law enforcement from what was supposed to be a sealed hearing. Obviously, um, that would be against the law in the U.S. In Italy, I don't know, not not so much. What, what What's the case over there? Well, I mean, obviously, like a, it'd be like a grand jury proceeding here. You know, it was pre-indictment. Yeah. yeah. And so here it's completely confidential. Um, but there it probably it, it wasn't. And the lawyers representatives that were loath to speak to the press because they felt that it would be against her interest. Um, and the way that the system worked and the prosecutors, etc. So we had this weird thing coming out. Okay, and you're, you're breaking up on me a, a little bit. I don't know if you can get closer to a, a window or something. Um, but I, I think what I heard you saying was that her Italian lawyers thought it would not be in her best interest to bring up the fact um, that the powers that be were breaking the law by leaking information from a sealed hearing. Right. I think what she was she was saying is that that unlike the U.S., where you know, like Anne, for instance, will often you know speak to the media and and take the the battle of the courtroom into the media and the press. Yeah. In Italy, there was a in the Madanoxus case, the lawyers who were the Italian lawyers representing her um, did not speak to the press and and in not you know countering the lies that were promulgated in the media, they they were doing her a disservice. Oh yeah, and and for that matter, not just the Italian media, but uh, the victim was a citizen of the UK, so the uh, the British tabloids were also having a field day. Uh, with with Amanda Knox too, right, Ann? Yeah. Can you hear me better now? You're much better. Yes, ma'am. Loud and clear. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm in my car, so I moved. Okay. Well, so yeah. Not only that, but it was it was alleged that Meredith's dad worked for one of the tabloids, but I never was able to verify that. Yeah. But the British tabloids had a field day, and if you watch the Netflix documentary on Amanda Knox. There's an individual named Nick Pisa who wrote for the Daily Mail, and he basically said, you know, it was great, you know, for him, you know, because there was so much he could write about, and the fact that it was salacious was something that was really important. So he kind of unabashedly, you know, admitted to, you know, some pretty, um, I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, it was basically, you'd never really see that in the U.S. Things like 
no next noxy like she didn't have any knickers on she had to go shop for underwear you know that you know foxy noxy sex slay you know ritualistic devil cult the she devil i mean all these characterizations of her were just unbelievable i mean salaciously sensationalizing it yes so when she's eventually found not guilty can she go after the uk daily mail for defamation yeah, Doug can probably speak to this better. And, of course, Doug speaks Italian and worked with me all along you know, on the Amanda, case, Amanda Knox case, and his family's Italian. His wife and children are from Sicily, yeah. Italian. But, it's, you know, basically what she did is she can't get reparations in Italy um, for false convic- convictions. She did get something. Raffaele was denied because basically they said he didn't throw Amanda under the bus, you know, interestingly. I think there were some things against the media, but I don't know if you can speak to that more, more, Doug. I was kind of involved with, you know, hearing about it, but not directly involved with any kind of actions against the media. Yeah, Doug, well, what well, do you... you know, the, the, there's a different de- defamation in the U.K. And, and the U.S. I mean, it's easier to bring a charge of defamation in the U.K. than it is in the U.S. In the U.S., you basically need to be a celebrity what happened with, you know, the, another interesting thing about the Italian judicial system is that there's no bail, but then if you're found innocent, then they pay you for the time that you're in jail. So they would have been both entitled to payment of maybe $20,000. But in Amanda's case, she wasn't eligible because she had this defamation fine against her for, for accusing Lumumbo, which was part of the false confession. And she never paid that fine. And then, and then, um, Raffaele, they, they said that they had, they continued to have this idea that they were there in the room, even though they weren't involved in the killing. And so then they said, well, because you falsely said that you weren't there in the room, we're going to fine you for that and right. for contempt of court. And even though it would have, he refused to say that because it wasn't true. So in the end, he never got paid back for, uh, you know, for, for his time in, in jail. And then the question of whether Amanda would be able to sue you know, the British tabloids for defamation. Um, I think in theory she would be, but I think probably by the time that she was done with all this, she just sort of wanted to put it behind her. Yeah, well, I can't blame her for that. In the interest of full disclosure, Raffaele was the boyfriend. Um, Also, one of the things that just leaped out uh, from your book is that she consistently denied having been there when her roommate was murdered, and she had been up for many hours, and they started telling her, well, what would it have been like if you had been there? Yeah. And and so she's yeah. like, well, gee, I don't know, I guess, you know. And so she's needing, desperately needing sleep, and she's trying to go with them. And then once she says what it would have been like, hypothetically, they're like, well, there's your confession. Uh, it's, it's just yeah. outrageous. Yeah, that's exactly right. And she said, you know, what if she said, I would have covered my ears. Yeah. And and we actually had the written statement here in the U.S., in Italy, or in Italian and in English. And, but they sold that as a confession from the get-go, saying that she confessed to killing Meredith. Outrageous. Okay, so, Anne, your book covers a number of, of very high-profile cases, not just Amanda Knox, but Kyle Rittenhouse, 
the death of George Floyd, Michael Jackson, Scott Peterson, Casey Anthony, O.J., the Duke lacrosse case, uh, the more recent killing of Ahmad Arbery in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, Mary Kay Letourneau statutory rape case, the West Memphis three, three, as you guys mentioned, is one of the things all these cases have in common that seem so different uh, at the start is the fact that media coverage, including social media, can make it very difficult for the accused to get a fair trial? Yeah, that's the common denominator. And what we covered were cases that were mine, like Mary Kay Letourneau or Susan Cox Powell, um, or cases that I covered as an analyst. And that's, that's exactly right. I mean, look at Johnny Depp's trial. I mean, he was tried by TikTok, and everybody loved him. And everybody hated Amanda Heard and demonized her. Yeah. It was kind of unbelievable, you know, and you see that, you know, social media just becomes, you know, ex- exponential in terms of what may be false information, but also, the, you know, basically confirmation bias, which we talked about and Doug touched on earlier, which is people make up their minds and they just don't change their minds and then it just goes viral. Yeah, one of the I'm so glad you brought up confirmation bias because. As a conservative, I'm out there on Twitter. I'm doing show prep 24-7 because that's where news breaks. And on a regular basis, I'll see another conservative print a meme with a quote from somebody. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think that person ever actually said that. But 99% of the people who may be on the same end of the political spectrum with me are going, see, I know it. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. There's no link. There's no proof that this person yep. said this, but the person who posted it wants you to think that this person said it. And 99% of the people, it would never occur to them because of confirmation bias to go, okay, well, that's interesting, but do you have any proof that that person actually said that? And they're just off to the races, and it doesn't matter uh, to them whether it's actually true or not because they want it to be true. Well, exactly. And and, and then you deal with, the whole cancel culture, you know, yeah. something like that gets out there and then someone gets canceled, you know, it's like, everyone's see, you know, they're, they're a terrible person. And, and it's Gertrude Stein has a great, had a great quote. She's it's that everybody gets so much information every day that they lose their common sense. I think that's yeah. where we are. You know, you just grab the first headline. I say you, we, all of us, yeah. um, and, and run with it. There's no time to very, to verify, you know, or to do a lot of independent research, at least in the justice system, so that what comes out first, you know, is probably going to carry the day unless you can really combat it in the media and in the courtroom, which is facts, facts, and more facts. Yeah. Let me bring Doug back in for a second. Doug, um, I've been a talk show host for many years. Of course, as a talk show host, I want to interview people involved in uh, high-profile criminal cases, whether they have national attention or just something local in the in the market where I happen to be doing a, a radio show at the time. But whenever I've been approached by people who have been indicted in local criminal cases, whether I was in Panama City, Florida, or Savannah, Georgia, or Little Rock, Arkansas, the people who say they just want to get on my show, on the air, and clear their names, my rule of thumb has always been to tell these folks, well, uh, okay, but make sure you talk to your lawyer first. Now, if your attorney says it's okay for you to come on my talk show, fine. Or if he or she wants to come on instead of the client, that's fine, too. It, it, do a lot of people in media do that, or am I kind of unique? I mean, do most media people just want to get the story no matter what? 
Yeah, I think that I think that's usually the case. I mean, um, you know, like I was just um, kind of re- doing something for uh, a film proposal I'm putting together, and I was reviewing the case of Hans Peterson, who uh, was someone who took a medication for acne that caused side effects, and then he he killed his dermatologist, and. Um, you know, that was a case where I was interviewed for Dateline and they, they just went, you know, straight for the, they, they wanted to get my take on it because I, I had some expertise in that particular area. But what they were looking for is, you know, get, to get someone to say that, the you know, the uh, the medication made me do it defense, which, you know, I wasn't really willing to to say. But in that case, they, they went directly for the family and they, you know, they didn't ask about inter- intervening um, opinion from a lawyer. You know, it's sort of a, I'd be interested in what Ann has to say about this, because it is sort of a knee-jerk reaction that the lawyers tell their clients not to talk to the press without yeah. talking to them first, and yeah. and we do not comment on pending litigation, but, you know, Ann and some others like her operate in a different way, and they use the media as an effective tool. So I'm just curious what she has to say about that. Yeah, and that was the Accutane uh, defense you were talking about there, right? Yeah, that's right. That yeah. was the case of... Uh, um, Someone who took Accutane and, and developed some side effects and then murdered his dermatologist. And that was quite a striking case, of course. So it got yeah. a lot of media attention. And, and then he fled to Guadalupe, which doesn't have an extra, extraditing uh, treaty with the United States. Wow. Um, yeah, not a good sign when you're trying to, uh, uh, you know, somehow or another foster the uh, the impression of innocent till proven guilty. But, Anne, yeah, what, what, how do you deal with that differently than a lot of attorneys? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I don't believe in the quote-unquote no-comment approach. I, I like to deal with the press because I know how powerful the press and social media Internet can be, as we talked about in the book. So I love that you give it that advice to defendants that may want to come on your show, but I, I tend to let a lot of my clients talk to the press. I usually get them ready, you know, but I think, you know, I represent a lot of police officers, you know, in addition to general criminal defendants, but when I have a really high-profile case, you know, I'll definitely look at that when my clients speak, um, including to the you know national press. And over the years, I've done that, and um, I've regretted a couple. <laughs> I'll have to say it's not a perfect approach. Sure, um, but overall, I think it's it's been something that's been successful. Well, that's an interesting thing, though. Look at the Scott Peterson case, and he was oh. on. Was it and with Diane Sawyer? I think. And yeah. he gave an interview to sort of present himself as a likable, innocent person. But then he said a few things that made it made that may have ruined this case for him. Oh yeah, and they, I think they played those in court. I mean, he was terrible. Yeah, um, the Ahmed Arbery case I thought was interesting, and of course tragic because a young man died. Um, on the one hand, I, I looked at the the video, and I'm thinking. Okay, clearly, I think these guys killed this guy, and they didn't need to. It certainly wasn't self-defense. On the other hand, you're like, you know, if Ahmed Arbery had just said, okay, this is ridiculous, um, sure, I'll wait for the cops. I'd rather deal with them than with you. He'd probably be alive today, but that doesn't in any way get rid of their guilt. I had a little bit of a connection. I used to work and live in Brunswick, Georgia, and I have been a co-worker with the guy who 
released the video to the public, and all kinds of media organizations okay. wanted to talk to him, and, and he agreed to be interviewed by me, and it was just fascinating how that whole thing played out. But, um, you know, I, I wish Ahmed Arbery hadn't tried to, uh, you know, grab the gun, but also I I can't really argue with the, the, the guilty verdict, at least on the father and son duo. I don't know about the third guy. Um, how, how did you guys look at that case? Well, well I thought that, that... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Dan. I mean, with the video, that, that that's the interesting thing about that case is that, that the, the lawyer who released that video said that he released it to show that they weren't just a bunch of rednecks riding around in a pickup truck with the Confederate flag yeah. chasing people, but... Yeah. That was the dumbest thing that they could have done because if it, without that video, they would have never have gotten to where where it is now. But it's amazing to me to think that someone thought that, that would would help them. Yeah. But you know, yeah. and analyze that case and compared it to the to the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case because when those two verdicts came out at about the same time, I was wondering like, why is one person guilty, not the other? And when you closely examined the legal aspects of the case, as as the jury did, without all this background noise and social media yeah. flutter that if you look at the law that that those jury verdicts were both correct because in one case Kyle Rittenhouse was actually acting in 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 self-defense but in the Ahmad Arbery case as the prosecutor said it's not self-defense if you started it you know because yeah. they, since they pursued him it that um, you know they couldn't use the the self defense argument, and in fact, Ahmad Arbery had not committed any crime. All he'd done is he'd run across an open lot, and there was no sign on the lot of the house under construction saying no trespassing. Yep. So unless you post a sign that says no trespassing, it's not necessarily illegal to walk across someone's private property. Yeah. Yeah, and the other part of it is you, you can't, by virtue of being the first aggressor, invoke the right to self defense. And yeah. that's what this was. They tried to say they were using the citizen's arrest ordinance or statute, which really didn't apply. Um, and then by virtue of that, that they were in a place that had a right to be when the force was used. But, you know, basically there's nothing to arrest him for. I think it had to be for a felony. So as Doug says, I mean, there was no crime. Therefore, it's a house of cards. Therefore, they didn't have any right to use um, self-defense because they were the first aggressors unlawfully. Yeah. No question about that. Okay, and here is what I think may be the elephant in the living room. Now, we have a First Amendment right, okay. not just to freedom of the press, but also free speech. So as a defense attorney, how do you protect the right to a fair trial for your client, the defendant? And as a prosecutor, how do you try to protect against jury nullification from a biased jury who's already heard too much from the media, including social media? Well, it's really difficult. I mean, the only thing you can do, as I said before, is to put facts and facts and more facts out in the media. We did a media kit. We had a website on Amanda Knox. We had everything that was um, in the case available. Um, we had it translated into many, many languages. And we did immediate after media appearance after media appearance to try and turn around a super tanker, basically false information yeah. in her case. And we said from the beginning that that evidence was compromised, contaminated, and inadmissible. And that's where the case ended up, you know, with the, with the experts. You know, how do you deal with the jury? One thing I do with jurors in a high-profile case is I have them write down everything they've heard about the case on their questionnaire. Write down everything. And you can tell by what somebody writes down what they think. 
Sure. You know, they're just going to write it in a way that will tell you, you know, what they think, because you're going to get stealth jurors. You're going to get people on the jury that want to be on or not say that they feel like your client's guilty, etc. And it's very inexact science. I do use jury consultants. We do do research um, in high-profile cases because you have to be really careful in terms of who gets on that jury. Absolutely. You know, I would like to, before we run here, I would like to get each of your thoughts about about what, if any, laws you think should be passed to protect the rights of, of defendants. Doug, do you have any thoughts about that? Is there anything we can do to kind of fine-tune our our legal system? I think our, our system is, you know, doing the best it can right now. I mean, we in cases where... It's high profile. We've sequestered juries during during the course of the trial, which is what you know. To give Italy as an example, they do not do. They do sequester the jury, you know, when they're doing their final deliberations. But um, you know, they can be exposed to the media during the course of the trial. And so I've I've thought about that, and and I think overall our you know our system is pretty good. But it's a it's a constant challenge to you know to sort of fight back against that neg- negative media and negative social media and you know, fight for the rights of people to have their day in trial in court. Absolutely. And, and what what are your thoughts about that? Are there any laws you can think of uh, that would make, you know, the rights of defendants easier to protect? Well, I think it's a big question about just basically standards being imposed on social media. That's a whole other question. Facebook, yeah. Twitter, you know, in terms of accuracy, and they don't seem to police themselves. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, but um, in my opinion. But I think that what can be done in the system is that judges should not be allowing information out before trial that is um, prejudicial to a defendant. I mean, it's due process. Why, why, why is this all this release all the time in these cases long before the trial? How about the video on Chauvin, you know, on George Floyd is an example. How about the fact that they released that they settled that case for millions then they release that during jury selection. I mean, those are the kinds of things that will taint a jury. Um, there's no question about it. And and so I, I think judges need to basically adhere to the requirements of, of due process and not releasing bad, you know, prejudicial information that may not come in at trial because that's how it gets out into the media and social media, et cetera. Um, I, I also think we have bench bar press guidelines in my state. You know, where we basically have agreements, you know, with the prosecutors and the press and the defense to standards in terms of how media is handled to protect their rights to defendants. I think that that should be across the nation if it isn't already. Um, there's also media watchdog groups. Um, we had one here in Washington, the News Council, that basically could challenge what was in the media and actually have a hearing yeah. in lieu of filing a lawsuit. Um, and I think we're the only state that has that, and, and now it's defunct. Those are just some ideas. I could go on and on. No, I, and I think that's a good point because when I saw the video of Officer Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, I'm like, I'm watching a murder. I, 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 yeah, I, I, was, I was open and shut, and then a few months later, I read an article where it, it talked about excited – uh, excited delirium, delirium. and and yeah. the contention in the article was actually uh, no he is just following uh, the Minneapolis Police Department standard operating procedure when somebody has excited delirium. Then eventually I, I saw that 
that George Floyd was saying, I can't breathe while he's standing on the sidewalk before they even try to put him in the police car. And then he says, I want to lie down. And I'm like, okay, now I don't know what to think. But what I do know is my first impression, just seeing that video of that one officer with a knee on on his neck and not even realize there are three other officers on the other side of the car holding him down. I'm like, this guy's a murderer. And then when all yeah. this other stuff come out, came out, I'm like, well, now I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. So, yeah, um, the fact that the judges and or prosecutors are allowing very prejudicial uh, information to be released early on has to hurt, um, you know, a, a, a defendant in a criminal trial, uh, not to mention uh, the, the threats of, of violence if, if the jury uh, were to have exonerated him in some way. Oh, right, and, and I think that when you when you have, you know, we basically have a steady drumbeat against the defendant and outrage and protests and everything else. Yeah, you know, it's just going to be a land, landslide against them. And you know that that's that's even if you know I have cases involving some police officers here in Washington State on some cases, and I'm very worried about just by virtue of the fact that they're police officers. Yeah about whether they could really get a fair trial. And that's just, that's just really unfortunate because, you know, we're all created equal in a courtroom, yeah. you know, and that, that includes police officers. Wow. Um, the, the book is Justice in the Age of Judgment. The authors are Anne and Doug Bremner. Uh, it's on a, a Simon & Schuster imprint. Uh, the official release date is Tuesday, November 8th, but obviously you can go ahead and order it now. Uh, Ann and Doug, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I, I appreciate uh, uh, you both coming on the Doc Washburn Show today. And as we say here in the South, y'all come see us. Okay, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, God bless yeah, you. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Wow. Now, I just want to tell you something. Um. Ann and Doug Bremner are liberals. I'm a conservative. And we just had a pleasant conversation for over a half hour. Um, I don't doubt that my standard opening for the Doc Washburn show, saying, hey, I'm not going to call Biden president. Hey, uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago was outrageous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't doubt that that made them think, okay, what have we gotten ourselves into here? Regardless. Regardless, we focused on the issues. We focused on their book. And, you know, again, I just think that, uh, you know, you can have people from different sides of the aisle when it comes to politics who uh, can have polite conversations and bring out some edifying information. You know, it, it has been done before, and I hope it will be done again. And it's kind of ironic, you know, we're having this conversation um, the day before a very contentious primary election all over the country, uh, Tuesday, November 8th. But I just want to tell you, it is possible for people from very different 
worldviews, to have uh, polite and respectful conversations. We, we just did it. You know, most of the guests I will interview are going to be conservatives, but um, the publicist for this book had contacted me a while back. Um, she was pushing some books that were basically um, pop culture, entertainment stuff, and I said, hey, um, and I think through LinkedIn, LinkedIn. And I said, hey, Jennifer, whatever her name was, um, thanks, but the kind of show that I do every day focuses on current events and breaking news. And I do a conservative political talk show. So, you know, if you ever have anything like that, um, feel free to get back in touch with me. And lo and behold, months later, She's like, hey, um, I've got this book that I think will fit what you do. Um, Amanda Knox and Justice in the Age of Judgment. And they talk about Kyle Rittenhouse and they talk about uh, George Floyd. And they, I'm like, oh, well, in that case, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can do that. So anyway, um, I appreciate the. Uh, the, the guests for not freaking out when they found out where I'm really coming from politically. And I think we, uh, all three of us, uh, acquitted ourselves well on that. But, you know, what we do here on a regular basis on the Doc Washburn Show would not be possible without our advertisers. And we appreciate them so much including my buddy Mitch Ward over at Red River Your Way. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's still such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you will see that each vehicle on their website has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Now, clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental United States of America, RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. All right, y'all. 
Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes as well as multi-line users. I'll tell you something. I'm not a veteran. I'm certainly not a first responder, but I'm saving money big time since I went to Patriot Mobile. Now, when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of the big mobile carriers to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, my name, for free activation. Now, if you're a conservative-owned business, tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars go to corporate woke agendas, Patriot Mobile now offers competitive business plans to suit companies of any size. Switch to Patriot Mobile Business. Find out more at business.patriotmobile.com or call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Again, use promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. That's business.patriotmobile.com or the number 469-FREEDOM. And again, thank you so much to Glenn Story and the wonderful American team at Patriot Mobile for allowing us to do what we do here day in and day out, now into our second year on the Doc Washman Show. Okay, there's a fascinating article over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, by Jeffrey Anderson. He's the president of the American Main Street Initiative and served as director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2017 to 2021, obviously under Donald Trump. And the article is entitled, What to Expect on Tuesday? And I want to share that with you and then tell you about the elephant in the living room. Okay? He says Americans will soon get to cast their first votes since the science-denying COVID mask and vaccine mandates, the second wave of COVID-related blowout spending, and subsequent inflation, and the COVID-related school closures that allowed parents to see what the public schools are really teaching their boys and girls, including that they can choose whether they are boys or girls. With all of these matters implicitly on the ballot, how are things shaping up going into Election Day? Starting with the House of Representatives, six months ago, Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report projected a GOP gain in the 15 to 25 seat range. At the time, I responded, while things could change over the next six months, although the cake is probably largely baked, a GOP gain of 30 to 40 
House seats appears more likely at this stage of the contest than Amy Walters' projected GOP gain of just 15 to 25 seats. Fast-forwarding six months, the Cook Political Report now projects, as of November 6th, Republican gains of between 0 and 35 seats, with a midpoint of 17.5 seats, so slightly below the midpoint of its range of projected outcomes back in April. Nate Silver's 538 now says that the most likely scenario is a Republican gain of 15 House seats, and it still maintains that Democrats have a 17% chance of holding the House. Real Clear Politics, meanwhile, is now projecting that Republicans will gain between 14 to 48 House seats with a midpoint of 31 seats. Since Republicans need only six seats to obtain a majority, Real Clear Politics projections amount to something like a 99% chance that Republicans will gain control of the House. In line with Real Clear Politics, I'll stick with my earlier projection of a Republican gain of 30 to 40 House seats, which would produce a GOP margin of about 50 to 70 House seats. In Senate races, an expansive map suggests a range of possibilities spanning from having Democrats narrowly maintain control of that chamber to Republicans moving perhaps halfway from their current tally of just 50 seats, if we're counting Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski as Republicans, to a filibuster-proof 60 seats with a favorable map to come in 2024. Interesting. So he's saying we could get halfway to a filibuster-proof 60. The Cook Political Report, as I have previously explained, can be a valuable resource for projecting Senate races, but this requires using a handy decoder to account for Cook's consistent left-leaning bias. Wait a minute. Mainstream media pollsters have a left-leaning bias? Who knew? But I digress. Over the past four federal elections, Republican Senate candidates have won a whopping 72% of Cook's so-called toss-up races, posting a win-loss record of 23-9. to At the same time, they have posted an 11-zip win-loss record in Cook's so-called competitive races that merely lean Republican, winning by an average margin of 14 percentage points, six points higher than Democrats' eight-point average margin of victory in competitive races that Cook says lean their way. Cook currently lists four Senate races as toss-ups, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. If Republicans win three of those four, effectively matching their usual winning percentage in Cook's so-called toss-up races, and if other states go as Cook projects, that would give Republicans two pickups, getting them to 52 Senate seats and control of that chamber. Nate Silver's 538, meanwhile, is projecting as of November 6th that the most likely scenario is for Republicans to pick up one Senate seat and gain control by a 51 to 49 margin. Offering a different assessment, Real Clear Politics projects that Republicans will gain three seats and end up with 53 senators. 
Two weeks ago, I highlighted what appeared to be 11 competitive Senate races. One of those no longer qualifies as Republican incumbent Chuck Grassley's lead has ballooned from three points to 12 points over his Democrat challenger in polling by the Des Moines Register newspaper. That leaves these 10 competitive races with Republicans needing to win five to take the Senate and Democrats needing to win six to hold it. First of all, number 10, Ohio, advantage Republicans. Republican J.D. Vance hasn't trailed Democrat Tim Ryan in a poll listed by Real Clear Politics since late September, and he currently, as of November 6th, leads by 7.5 points in the Real Clear Politics average of recent polling after leading by less than a point just three weeks ago. In 2020, polling grossly underestimated Donald Trump's support in Ohio being off by seven points. Vance will prevail unless this year's polling is off by even more in the opposite direction, which is not likely. Number nine, North Carolina advantage Republicans. Republican Ted Budd has led in every poll listed by Real Clear Politics since the start of October, and the Tar Heel State was almost six points to the right of the nation in 2020, as Joe Biden lost there by 1.3 points while winning by 4.5 points nationally. It will be something of a shocker at this point if Democrat Sherry Beasley, who trails by 5.2 points, were to win, but this remains a dark horse competitive race. Number eight, Wisconsin, advantage Republicans. In 2016, Ron Johnson performed 6.1 points higher than the real clear politics average, winning by 3.4 points when polling had him behind by 2.7 points. This time he's up by 2.8 points versus Democrat challenger Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Unless anti-incumbent sentiment is even stronger than polling indicates, Ron Johnson appears to be in the driver's seat in Wisconsin. Number seven, Colorado, advantage Democrats. Democrat incumbent Senator Michael Bennett looks beatable And Colorado remains a swing state, albeit one that leans Democrat. But Republican Joe O'Day, who praised Senator Bennett's role on immigration as a member of the Gang of Eight during a recent debate, might not have drawn enough of a contrast for voters. The real clear politics average has Bennett up by 5.3 points. Schaffelgar has O'Day within two points, however, and this race could still surprise. Number six, Washington State Advantage Democrats. If Republican Tiffany Smiley manages to upset longtime incumbent Democrat Senator Patty Murray, who has held this seat since Bill Clinton entered the White House, this will be a night to remember for Republicans. While Patty Murray still leads by three points in the real clear politics average of recent polling, Smiley who has never held elective office of any sort, is positioned for a possible huge upset. Nate Silver's 538 gives that upset only a 9% chance of happening, and the Cook Political Report still says this race is not considered competitive. Still, the guess here is that the odds of Smiley's winning are notably higher than the odds of having Stephen Curry, a career 91% 
free throw shooter miss a foul shot. <laughs> wow. Number five, Nevada advantage Republicans. Republican Adam Laxalt leads Democrat incumbent Senator Kathy Cortez Mastro by 2.4 points in the real clear politics average. Perhaps a greater concern for Cortez Masto is that polling shows her with only 44.9% support in an environment in which it seems unlikely that a lot of late deciding voters will break toward incumbents of the same party as the president, whose approval rating, according to Real Clear Politics, is at only 42.4% himself. This is a state, however, in which polling is sometimes overstated. Republican support. Trump fared 3.2 points worse than expected in 2016, losing by 2.4 points when favored by 0.8 points. And Republican Dean Heller fared worse than expected in 2018, losing by 5 points in what was supposed to be a dead heat, although polling was quite accurate in 2020. Number four, Georgia. Advantage Republicans. Republican Herschel Walker, the former Heisman Trophy-winning Georgia Bulldog football player, was behind by 5.2 points in the real clear politics average on October 9th, but is now running neck-and-neck with Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock, with Walker leading by four-tenths of a point. Warnock sits at 46.8% support in the real clear politics average of available polls, So like Cortez Masto over in Nevada, Warnock would need to pick up a fair number of late deciding voters. If neither candidate gets a majority of the vote, this race will go to a runoff in December. Number three, Pennsylvania advantage Republicans. Dr. Mehmet Oz and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman are separated by just one-tenth of a percent of points in the real clear Politics average. Dr. Oz, who was down by four points a month ago, appears to have some late momentum, perhaps especially in the wake of the candidate's October 25th debate. But early voting in the state was well underway by then. Polling in Pennsylvania underestimated support for Trump by 2.6 points in 2016. He won by 0.7 points after being behind in the final real clear politics average by 1.9 points, but was accurate in 2020. This contest could easily go either way, but Dr. Oz's recent surge, combined with the likelihood that Biden's low approval rating won't help Fetterman with late deciding voters, appears to give Republicans a slight edge as this race heads to the wire in Pennsylvania. Number two, New Hampshire, advantage Democrats. The Republican establishment has tried hard to lose this race by refusing to fund the GOP primary winner, Don Bolduck, a retired Army general and political outsider. According to Open Secrets, Democrat incumbent Maggie Hassan has outraised General Bolduck by an outstanding margin of 17 to 1. Yet Bolduck, who trailed Hassan by 5.4 points in the real clear politics average as recently as October 20th, is now within one point with all the polls and the current 
real clear politics average having been taken after the candidates sole debate. Now, the Cook Political Report still calls this race Democrat-leaning, but don't be surprised if Cook moves it to a toss-up status by Election Day. New Hampshire is a quintessential swing state and is the only state to have been within four points of the nation in either direction in each of the past seven presidential elections. The Granite State also still believes in Election Day, not Election Month. And this is anyone's race with Senator Hassan appearing to hold just a sliver of an advantage based on recent polling. Number one, Arizona, toss-up. The Republican establishment has also tried to lose this race, but Republican Blake Masters has closed a five-and-a-half-point deficit on October 15th versus Democrat incumbent Mark Kelly to just one point in the current Real Clear Politics average. 48.2 to 47.2%. Masters should also be helped by the late withdrawal of Libertarian Mark Victor, who dropped out November 1st and endorsed Masters, a development that is only partially reflected in current polling. Don't expect even Fox News to call this race early. So of these 10 competitive races, Republicans appear to have the advantage in six and Democrats in three, with one race not favoring either party. If each party wins the race in which it now looks to have the advantage, Republicans would end up with 52 Senate seats. To keep control of the Senate, therefore, Democrats would need to win the three competitive states where they currently appear to have the advantage, win the toss-up state of Arizona, and win two of the six competitive races in which the GOP now appears to have at least a narrow edge. Real Clear Politics' Sean Trend, back in January, highlighted his model for Senate races, which is based primarily on the sitting president's approval rating. His model indicated that if Biden had an approval rating of 42 or 43 percent on Election Day, his current approval rating is 42.4 percent, Republicans would pick up between two and five Senate seats, giving them between 52 and 55 seats. That sounds more plausible than 538's current claim that the most likely range is between 49 and 52 Republican seats, even though 538 has gotten to incorporate about nine months' worth of additional information in making its projections. The guess here is that the GOP will end up with between 51 and 54 Senate seats. We'll soon see the American people's verdict. Okay, that is Jeffrey H. Anderson over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, article entitled What to Expect on Tuesday. Again, Anderson is president of the American Main Street Initiative and served as director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics, U.S. Department of Justice, for four years under President Trump. Now, here's the elephant in the living room. First of all, Anderson will refer to the 2020 presidential election in swing states as states that Biden won over Trump, when all the available evidence shows that Biden stole those votes, didn't really win them, okay? I mean, Trump was leading on election night in Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, comfortable leads. 
The counting stopped in all five states at the same time. In the middle of the night, a bunch of hundreds of thousands of votes were dumped in. But this guy, and I'm surprised this guy does a column in American Greatness not reflecting any of that. The other thing is that recently the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania and Joe Biden have both said that in a number of races, we're not going to know the winner right off the bat. It's going to take days to count all the mail-in ballots, all that kind of stuff. So in a perfect world where there's no cheating going on, Jeffrey Anderson's article in American Greatness makes perfect sense. But um, I was recently asked by a producer of a popular Fox News show off the air on a private message, a DM on Twitter, what I thought about the upcoming midterms. And I said, well, the fact that uh, both the Pennsylvania Secretary of State and Joe Biden have said, we're not going to know a lot of these winners right off the bat. It's going to take days. I said, there's only one reason they're saying that, and that's really bad. And this producer did not disagree with me. So we'll see what happens. Make sure you get out and vote. Take people with you and pray for our country. It's very serious. Uh, the uh, Democrats like to say democracy is on the ballot. I checked. It's not. But the future of our country is at stake. I know that much. And, of course, we'll be following everything on the Doc Washburn show on election day, on election night. Okay, let me ask something. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo? How about psoriasis, migraines, problems with your blood sugar? The Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it is designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it has never come back. Same thing with the migraines. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me, they've helped my wife, and they've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas and you're thinking, man, that might help me. Well, you're right. It certainly could. Go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. And thanks once again to our advertisers, Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, at TurnMyPowerOn.com. They're also our friends and our doctors, and they've helped us so much. We appreciate you guys allowing us to continue doing what we do here day in and day out now in our second year on the Doc Washburn Show. All right, it's that time again. Hit it, Brian. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online and have it shipped to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. All right, our tweet of the day is a multi-parter. You may have heard a guy named Elon Musk, multi-billionaire, recently bought a platform called Twitter, and he says Twitter needs to become by far the most accurate source of information about the world. That is our mission. Well, a response from a journalist named Kyle Grantham said, and to do this, I'll let anyone who gives me money appear to be a legitimate source of news rather than just ensuring all legitimate sources of news are confirmed to be who they say they are. Elon Musk actually noticed this tweet and responded, You represent the problem. Journalists who think they are the only sources of legitimate information. That is the big lie. So a guy named Chris D. Jackson Big old Democrat Party activist responded, So basically, Elon thinks Bubba's opinion is just as valid as a credentialed journalist. To which the great Kyle Becker, proprietor of Becker News, responds, Maybe so-called credentialed journalists shouldn't make a living out of lying to the American people. And he's got the list. He brings the receipts. He says, how many recent mainstream media hoaxes did you fall for? Russian collusion? The lie that Trump called neo-Nazis fine people? Jussie Smollett? Bubba Wallace garage pull? Covington kids? Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot? Kavanaugh rape? The Trump P-tape? COVID lab leak was a conspiracy theory? Border agents whipped migrants. Trump saved nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago. Steel dossier. Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Trump said drinking bleach would fight COVID. Muslim travel ban. Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. Andrew Cuomo, best COVID leadership. Trump built cages for migrant kids, calling the head of ISIS an austere religious scholar, as the New York Times did. Trump overfed koi fish in Japan. Build Back Better will pay for itself. Trump tax cuts benefited only the rich. Cloth masks prevent COVID. If you get vaccinated, you won't catch COVID. SUV kill parade marchers. Trump used tear gas to clear a crowd for a Bible photo. Don't say gay was in the Florida bill. Putin price hike on oil and gas. Ivermectin is just a horse dewormer and not for humans. Mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests. Trump overpowered Secret Service for Wheel of the Beast SUV. Officer Brian Sicknick, January 6th, was murdered by protesters. January 6th was an insurrection. Trump mocked a reporter's disability. B. 
BYU students hurl racist insults at Duke volleyball player? How many of those recent mainstream media hoaxes did you fall for? And you're not going to believe the first response. Bless her heart, this liberal said, well, I stopped reading this list at the first item since that was proven. Talk about Russia collusion. And their first response to her said, Mueller special counsel had 19 lawyers, 40 FBI agents, 2,800 subpoenas, 500 search warrants, 13 evidence requests from foreign governments, 230 communications records, 50 pen registers, 500 witnesses, finding no conspiracy, no collusion. And there's a screenshot from page 96 of the Mueller report. It says, read it sometime. It's amazing what people insist on believing, isn't it? That is your multi-tweet, tweet of the day, brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Again, thank you to our buddy Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way. You've been listening to episode 276 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, Simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions. Seventh floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Monday, November 7th, 2022.